trying to figure out how to, like what exactly I'm trying to say here. Um, Hey, welcome to Marginally, a podcast about writing, work, and friendship. I'm Olivia, a corporate fraud investigator living in London with my husband and two cats. I'm currently working on a novel and daydreaming about lots of other projects. And I'm Megan, a librarian and freelance indexer writing about complex women's friendships for both young adult and adult audiences. We are so delighted to bring you this interview today with Yang Huang, the author of the forthcoming novel, The Good Son. We were fortunate enough to have a chance to read a copy of it before the podcast, and so there are a few spoilers, but we don't go into a lot of detail about the plot, but we do talk a little bit about it, so just in case you want to check it out first. We really loved how deep and complex her characters are in the novel, and we do recommend it highly. Yang grew up in China and came to the U.S. to study computer science. While working as an engineer, she studied literature and pursued writing, and earned an MFA from the University of Arizona. She wrote about her writing journey in the essay, Why I Write in English, which we also highly recommend. Her new novel, My Good Son, won the University of New Orleans Press Publishing Lab Prize. Her linked story collection, My Old Faithful, won the Juniper Prize for Fiction, and her debut novel, Living Treasures, won the Nautilus Book Award Silver Medal in Fiction. She's published essays, stories, and screenplays in Poets and Writers, Literary Hub, and numerous other places. Yang lives in the San Francisco Bay Area and works for the University of California, Berkeley. Besides her day job in computer engineering and family life, she writes fiction and creates a more tolerant and hopeful world in her stories. We hope you enjoy this interview as much as we did. So we are really excited to have you on. Um, we loved your book, My Good Son, that um, is coming out soon. And I just wanted to say a lot. So a lot of my questions are going to end up looking or sounding more like comments because I just really love the things that you have to say and the things that you write. And so they're mainly just like, you said this, can you keep talking about it? <laughs> because I just really enjoy reading uh, your writing. So if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe explain, um, you work as a computer engineer at Berkeley. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So a lot of our listeners listen for, you know, day job and writing balance. How does that, how does that work look like for you? I work at UC Berkeley as a computer engineer. So I install software and maintain the computers in the instructional labs for the electrical engineering and computer science department. I work with other engineers and scientists. I like my job, though in a different ways as my creative work. If I do a good job, everything runs smoothly and nothing goes wrong. Then people don't know who I am. I'm invisible. My day job is very different from writing. It's technical work behind the scene. Writing fiction requires me to take risks and put myself out there. As a writer, I have a rather optimistic worldview. I like to tackle social problems in my fiction, put my characters to the test, let them endure, and in the darkest and most despairing hours, let them use the ingenuity, much like an engineer, and find some sort of relief or solution. Not a cure-all, but a way out so that I can move forward to rebuild their lives. So my writing life and day job are separate by the schedule. 
During the week, I mostly focus on my day job and family life. I have two sons, one almost 16 and the other 17 years old. When they were younger, I spent a lot of time shuttling them to and from the baseball and soccer practices. My writing time was extremely limited, but that's the life I choose. I made peace with it. I try not to compare myself with other writers who have more time, with other moms who can do more, with other engineers who don't have families. I consider myself a blue collar writer. I don't take writing for granted. It's a privilege. I guard my writing time jealously and negotiate with my professional and parenting responsibilities. In order to write well, I try to separate writing from my personal life. My writer persona is different from my real life persona. In daily life, I'm very organized, reliable, and conscientious. I multitask, set priorities, and deliver results on time. For example, I have to keep hundreds of computers running properly and cannot be late for my children's appointments. My persona changes when I retreat into my writing life. I usually wait for my family to go to bed and then allow myself to unwind, freeing myself from appointments, obligations, and such. Sometimes I overlook the dirty dishes in the sink. I manage to eat healthy and exercise, but I won't set the alarm clock or a tight deadline for my writing. Instead, I cultivate patience and a habit of pushing beyond my limit. I love to do lap swim, my exercise to stay healthy and strong. If my goal is 20 laps, I usually go to 21 laps or 22. This is a reminder that whatever my goal is, I always do a little bit extra. Not something to show off, but habit, a promise I keep between me and my work that I can push beyond my physical limit every time I use my body or mind. I've heard you or seen you say before about the swimming, the laps, and it's something that really stuck with me um, because... My different personalities are slightly different. I think Megan is more like sprint at the end of a run to prove that you can still go. And I'm like barely getting over the finish line or something. Mm -hmm. So it changed my mentality. And I like the way you framed it just now about being about trust um, with yourself. So you trust that you not only are just going to barely meet the requirements that you set for yourself, but like, Mm -hmm. you know, do a little bit more, which I really like. Um, so thanks. I wanted to talk to you about our about your book, actually. Um, so one of the things, and you mentioned it a little bit, uh, but I would like to hear a little bit more. One of the things that I really enjoyed about the book was that you, like the characters are quite complex. Like it feels like they have free will when they're living in this in the book. And so the answers or the sort of things that come out of it are not neat or easy plot response, you know, things that happen that are not predictable. I didn't really guess how things would turn out. Um, so how, like, I'm curious, maybe first, just tell us a little bit about your book, because um, I launched into it. And then second, maybe how do you get into characters like that? Because um, I think it's quite deep to be able to have a character who's able to move with that type of free will or independence. Yeah. My good son is a story about a Chinese father, Mr. Cai, who works as a tailor in Yangzhou, a provincial town. Mr. Cai wants his son, Fen, to become an engineer, but Fen has failed his college entrance exams four times, and this is his last chance. 
Meanwhile, a young American man named Jude comes to a tailor shop to have a vest made. Mr. Tai seizes the opportunity to ask Jude to be Fen's financial sponsor so that Fen can go to study at American University. Of course, his plan backfires. Mr. Tai discovers that Jude is a gay man and needs help to come out to, to his estranged father. So my good son's told from father's point of view, I truly enjoy telling this story because I wasn't protective of Mr. Tai. I let him and every person in the story make mistakes and be humbled. Uh, with my female protagonist, I may be a little tender and want to make a heroine being tested by her painful choices like Gubao in Living Treasures. I found I could go the distance with Mr. Tai, who is unlike myself. Through him, I also explore the moral question. Do you treat people as a means or as an end? Initially, Mrs. Hyde approaches Jude as someone who brings a rare opportunity, but very quickly he becomes Jude's friend and is committed to help him despite the outcome of the sponsorship. I found that change of heart endearing. I really love it when characters stand up and rebel against me. And I usually keep revising until they, you know, rebel against the plot and tells me something I don't know about them. And then I consider the book is done. <laughs> they become real. <laughs> they need to be strong and, you know, and convince me that they are real. Um, it's up to you if you want to share this, but I would be curious if you have an example of how it happened in this book, just like, I mean, did you have a different plan for how the novel would go? And then how do you, how do you trust that? I'm in the middle of writing my novel right now. I'm sort of doing a third revision and like, it's a long story. I won't bore you with, but you know, your characters are all over the place. And so I sort of took things out in the second draft. I've put it back in, in the third draft. And, you know, it's, like that gut feeling something is wrong or something is right. I think it's an important moment, but I'm just curious about how that showed up for you in this book. I think I know the plot of story uh, a little bit. Um, I conceived this story with the image. So it came to me just as an image. A tailor spends his entire life making clothes for other people. One day he puts on a long form fitting dress and walks in heels with some difficulty. I didn't know what he meant. But the strange image stayed with me. So I asked myself, does he pretend to be a woman or is he driven by something else? I tend to see some plot that just mystifies me. And as I dig deeper, I find a, a motivation that is not what I think it is. If I follow that instinct, you know, I follow that thread that let them act in a way that's puzzling and don't try to temper them with my design. And I just follow them. They usually take me to a surprising place. Yeah, they will teach me something. I don't know about them. That why this story um, drives me, you know, uh, takes me to these discoveries. <laughs> yeah, I really, like Olivia, I agree that it was a surprising book in a lot of ways, um, but nothing didn't make sense. You know, it was like, surprising in its own, in, in the ways that it unfolded, but it all still fit within the logic of the story overall. Like nothing felt out of place or wrong. Um, and it was really, it was really great. 
one of the things I loved about it was that it was from the perspective of the father. And so many times um, you've written before about your other books and, and your writing and how you didn't want to write, you, you didn't want to write like rags to riches, immigration stories. Um, and so mm-hmm. many of these books come from, you know, most of the time they're from the child's perspective, especially the ones that kind of show the, the conflict between like the parents' desires and the children's desires um, for control and freedom. They come from the child's perspective. And I think a lot of Western audiences want, they think that they want, because there are certain stereotypes, I guess, of um, different family structures and and child raising. And so um, I loved the way it came from the father's perspective and the way you really, like you said, you he was so, uh, he's just so real and so warm and you know you said he makes mistakes and he learns from them and and anyway it was unusual to read a book from the parents perspective and I really enjoyed it and I loved it and how it kind of um it was really subversive in a really lovely way um and so like I said earlier (laughs) my questions are more like can you talk more about this (laughs) thank you I just let him do some strange things and that I asked myself Mm -hmm. why he does these things and other people too, uh, little Ye, why does she hide her pregnancy? And the reason turns out to be slightly different from what everyone else expects and you need to investigate. I think, you know, um, just give everyone agency and treat them as a mystery that you try to solve. You know, I really like that. What is that? So what does that look like, practically speaking, um, when you sit down to write? Or are you a writer who spends a lot of time thinking at other times? Um, do you write drafts or notes? What does your process kind of look like? I usually just write chapter to chapter. <laughs> But I do have, um, I like to alter the rhythm of my writing. In the morning, I take a lot of time revising, painstakingly, uh, looking at over every word and every gesture, and just to try to plant this story in my mind. Then in the afternoon, I start to speed writing, type as quickly as I can, um, hardly looking over what I wrote, don't even do spell check. I, you know, I get typos, just get things out there. Because I worked so hard in the morning, um, my subconscious is in a place where the story wants to be in some way. And the next day, you know, then I sleep on it. The next day I look over what I write, then I can critique it. I cannot make outlines, you know, a rigid outline. Because uh, the story just lose charm for me if I do that. <laughs> it, works, it works better when I have a general idea about where the story is going to end up. I think I knew that the mother's going to abandon the child in some way. But I don't know how it's going to come about. I need to um, still go on the hunt, you know, find out that every step and how that comes about. And everyone just um, surprised me. (laughs) 
No, I really, I love that. I wanted to ask if you, this is just some something I'm personally figuring out for myself at the moment. Do you know, like when you saw that image in your mind, um, did you know for sure that it would be a novel? Um, Cause you also wrote a book of kind of interlinked stories as well. So mm-hmm. do you know when you sit down or you're just like sort of just going where the story takes you and you stop when it's done? I think I knew it was a novel because the story seems to be bigger than a short story. I want to go on journey with him. And I especially love to write about people at work. I like to know how um, a tailor, you know, he, he's artisan, but he's artist in some way, but he also has to make a living. So how he reconciled his artistic ambition with the need to make a living, I really want to get it into this profession in some way. Um, writing about work is one of my passion. I started with writing about engineer. It was extremely boring <laughs> because the metaphor doesn't work and engineers are too quiet. They're problem solvers and they're just too good. They're, they don't make trouble. So with this tailor, I sense there's an opportunity for him to make a fool of himself. Like, you know, the thing with putting on a dress, I thought that was kind of foolish. <laughs> and uh, I just want to know uh, where he's gonna go. And I did a, uh, quite a lot of bit of research about tailoring and, you know, I went to a few tailors to make my dress, make assorted items. And when I was little, um, when I was a teenager, I worked with a tailor in my neighborhood to make a wool jacket. And that tailor left a deep impression on me. So I, I think his wife was a tall, voluptuous woman. He is, uh, he looks more effeminate than his wife. He's just quiet, um, taking my measurements, working. And his wife said, I had, I had a small bust, tiny waist, and big hips. So that was kind of cutting for a 16-year-old. And I just wondered uh, what, you know, I know Taylor sized you up without mercy. I just, because he didn't say anything. I wonder what he was thinking. So when I was writing this book, I thought of him, even though he was much younger, he didn't have children. I just put a several different tailors image together into this composite character. And I had a lot of curiosity about their life and the emotion and the, you know, the family dynamics. Yeah, no, that's really funny. Um, it's funny you say that a tailor can size you up without mercy, but, but Mr. Chai is not very good at under he can size people up physically but he's not the greatest um at what lies underneath and I thought that was that was a really neat contrast um so I'm working on well it's my now you know you have like when I finish this book then this is the next one that I'm going to write and so the next one that I'm going to write involves a lot of research and I've been doing I've been doing the research over the last couple of years um and kind of just collecting it. So I'm really curious about your research process and what does that look like? I know you traveled to, um, I've read an interview where you talk about how you traveled to uh, and visited uh, tailors and, but how do you, what do you, what does, what does your research look like and how do you, 
collect it in a way that you can actually use it later. Like this is a fan favorite. This is a listener favorite. They love to hear <laughs> these technical things. Uh-huh. No one ever talks about what they do with the research though. They say, oh, I just, you know, did these things, but they don't today like how they organize it and what their processes. So we're always really curious. Yeah. I had to do a lot of research about textiles and tailoring craft because I didn't sew. Um, working as an engineer, I wasn't fashion conscious at all. I first started with reading. A book titled Color Me Beautiful taught me a lot about the effects of color. Another book titled The Asian Mind Game explained, explained what kind of businessman my tailor could be, but I didn't know his emotional landscape. I decided to go back to China to visit my family and do some research. I visited my parents and they introduced me to a tailor in Shanghai. This tailor had a son with a health problem. He told me that his petite wife had to carry the boy up five flights of stairs on her back after his treatment, watching them make his heart burst with love, pain, and sorrow. I was deeply moved and decided to make my protagonist a father struggling to raise his son up in this world. At the time, my husband didn't eat meat. Everywhere we went, people asked him if he did for religious or health reason. He said neither, he just didn't like the taste. But no one believed him. They still pressed him to eat meat. It didn't take much to make a person conspicuous in the circle of family and friends. So I give this character trait to Fan. Through my research and writing, I pieced together different elements and fiction to be born. Why is a tailor wearing a woman's dress? Gradually, I found a plot about a gay man coming out to his father. As for how I did it, um, I just pretty much documented as it came to me and saw through um, the material as I continued to write. And initially, I was just reading too much on making a vest, <laughs> for example, and got into all these details. Um, it, it was just, I didn't need all this much detail, you know, um, but it put me in a place that, you know, I just feel myself, my mind was cluttered up by this detail and I feel like him, you know, and I could think foolishly <laughs> like him. Uh, I, I don't really have a lot of method. I just, um, yeah, just documented in notes. I created a lot of text documents. Uh, some, one's called Vest. The other one's called like um, a fairy tales, uh, a myth. I did research on the myth as well because I want to know from outsider's perspective what elements of Chinese culture is significant, you know? So, um, and this is helpful to put the patterns on the silk, you know, <laughs> to uh, give them some, um, cultural significance, you know, I can communicate that to a foreign customer. I was thinking broad strokes and filling the details pretty much. After a while, this material became part of the story and I can't tell if they were real or not. <laughs> you know, they just, they became real to me. I think the analogy of a tailor is a really good one actually for writing as well, you know, because you have all this like material. I mean, it's it lends itself very easily to the, the metaphor of that. I really like that. I'm curious how you, there's like a, you know, a lot of different dimensions to writing 
a character who's like yourself, obviously um, it's a pretend, I mean, people think it's easier. I actually am not sure that it is because sometimes you don't explain it. I don't, when I write about people who are like me, I actually don't explain enough about right. the character because you're not inventing it. You, It's like, you know too much about this character. Um, that's just a separate thought, but I'm curious about how you also, like I liked that you wrote characters that are very much not like you, right? In some ways, um, like Jude mm -hmm. or uh, that sort of story. I'm curious how you approached doing that um, because I think it's important to obviously do these things you know, responsibly and sensitively, but, um, but I think it's also important to share, you know, diverse stories in books as well. So how did you approach that? I did a lot of research. I read a lot of personal accounts and um, I had a few gay friends and I want to get to know more about them. So when I do research, I was trying to think of the people I know, and that gives me motivation to to learn more about them. Obviously, um, you, you get to know them as just a casual friends. You can you don't know the interior um, landscape. I was trying to construct one for them in some way. Of course, it's not them. <laughs> and um, deep down, I thought all the people are kind of like you are. Essentially, all the characters. Um, people say, you know, is it autobiographical? Who are these characters? But it's essentially, they're all you, you know, they're all piece of you or something that you have learned about yourself and other people. Your story is not just your experience. It's what your life has prepared you to understand about life. So I want to expand my experience in writing. Obviously my right, you know, my life is very boring and uh, I don't have all these problems, thank goodness. Otherwise I would not be able to write. And that gives me the luxury to study people who do have problems. And we definitely need people um, with all sorts of emotional, you know, things they need to get over. And I just consider that is an honor and a responsibility to do justice to the human stories. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, I think that's a, a really good answer. Um, and I, well, I think, you know, on a bad day, like you're one character and on a different day, you're a different character, right? And you yeah. can really draw on those emotional experiences, like human experiences as such are not that different on one hand. And then obviously they are really different on a different hand. Yeah, so, sometimes people ask me, who is my favorite character? I always say my favorite character is my villain because I worked the hardest to understand them. Who, who's the villain in this story? I'm There's no villain in this book. <laughs> yeah. But in my uh, debut novel, Living Treasures, there is a villain. Yeah. And I really worked on him. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds familiar, for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I always like to say that I, you know, my all of the worst traits and characters are from me. And then the best traits are from the people that I know. So... But it is it is interesting. So I was realizing the other day that a lot of the stuff that I write has really terrible mothers. And maybe I don't have a terrible mother. So but I am I also have two sons. And so it's like, am I working out on the page? Maybe anxieties that I have? How am I, you know, how am I damaging my children or, you know, whatever. And I think maybe that's one of the reasons that I um really connected so strongly to your book is the the whole idea from the parents side of of what you do through your through your children and the idea of there being not just second chances but 
infinite chances if you are willing to be brave enough to ask to start again. Um, and I yeah. We love stories about terrible mother or terrible father. <laughs> I think in some way, everyone is a terrible parent because if you love your children too much, that becomes a problem, you know? Yeah. Or if you don't love them enough, that's another problem. So you can never be perfect because they're going to break away from you. And you just give them an excuse to, um, to, to be different. So I think this is just very universal themes, you know, if you really work on it. Yeah. yeah. And it, of course, it requires courage when you're a mother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a, yeah, it's a universal fear as well, I think. Not, not only, I don't have children, but not only that you're a bad parent, but I think like how you've just absorbed so much information about different types of parenting, I think. And it can be traumatic to see what's happened to your friends or to, you know, maybe experience something yourself. It depends. And so you do, there's just a, a lot of information, I think, as well that you right. um, need to work through. But also, obviously, just like it's more interesting to have a bad parent than a good exactly. parent, I think. Yeah, we want to read about interesting characters. Uh, only the people in your parenting book could be perfect. And then again, they are like two-dimensional, right? They're not three-dimensional. Once <laughs> you put them in the real world and they have to deal with unpredictable, um, you know, situation, then then they're going to surprise you. They're going to do some things that, yeah, that just looks interesting rather than correct. Because in fiction, we want interesting things to happen and we can learn uh, something about ourselves. When you see other people make a mistake, you learn something about yourself. So I thought it was, it's fiction writer's job, basically. <laughs> One yeah, of the no, things... I love that. Sorry, Megan. No, you go ahead. Um, sorry, this is just us fan, like, like Megan said, just telling you your own words back to it yourself. But there is an interview on your um, bio page. This, that's the YouTube video. And you talk about how you spent, um, it's about living treasures, your previous book. Mm -hmm. And um, you talk about how basically it took you 20 years to kind of work through the right way to tell a story about that topic. Um, mm -hmm. And I would, I mean, I, think we're all, especially as writers, we're probably working through things and figuring out a way to tell a story. But I was wondering how conscious you were of that, I guess. Like, were you thinking, I want to write about this and I don't know how? Or did you later write something and then realize it's something you'd been thinking about? I think I always wanted to write a story about that. Um, I Because it was a defining moment of my life. And, and that's the reason I get to immigrate to the United States. It's, it's life-changing in every way. But it's, this story has been told so many times by other books as well and uh, by the documentary. And also, it is too painful to write. I just didn't have the maturity, and you know, both as a person and as a writer, to tackle a story like that. So it was on my mind. I had to write uh, something else before I can get to this book, even though, you know, that was my debut novel, I actually wrote it after uh, my story collection. I guess, um, yeah, the, the metaphor uh, with the children did not come until, you know, I, I had my first child and that story began to um, come together for me. So it's, you know, you have to wait until you are mature enough writer to a tackle subject this big and uh, also your life experience 
prepare you to understand something that's, you know, to give you a perspective that's beyond the documentary, you know, uh, beyond the facts. Uh, what it is the emotional trauma for, um, for the Chinese people and uh, what is the legacy of this, you know? I think when I get the, um, the story about, um, you know, forced abortion and children, I begin to understand the legacy of, of the Tiananmen Square Massacre. And it wasn't just the, the protests. It, it is something deeper, you know, it has left impression, if not on the people in mainland China, but it definitely has changed me. And it possibly it is one of the reasons I wanted to become a writer. I want to tell difficult stories that, that are also important, too important to ignore. <laughs> So um, it has just never left me, but uh, I didn't work on it until I had my children. I guess um, if you had a story that you have worked you know, for uh, many years, you should give all the time and, and all the consideration and you know, emotion and just let it, let it brood and uh, you know, percolate and see what, what is gonna come up. And a lot of things will just fall away, you know, over the years. And uh, you're not going to find your story until that story surfaces from your subconscious with all its truth intact, you know. It, it just grabs you, will not let go. So I, I'm the person who don't take a lot of notes, you know. As people like to take a lot of notes. I, I just don't. I'm like a lot of things, random thoughts come and go, and they may not be very important. I just wait until something that really will not let me go. You know, that Taylor image is very strange. And I thought, what is that? But that image does not let me go. And uh, so I th think that's a motivation for me to excavate a story from, for that type of emotion and, uh, you know, or image or, you know, strange thoughts. <laughs> yeah, I really like that. I always feel like I should be taking more notes, but now I will use your idea that yeah. I don't have to. <laughs> no, but I agree. There are some ideas, they come and then I, like the other day I was like, oh yeah, I was going to write about this other thing, but I do, obviously don't care that much about it because I didn't remember at all. Mm -hmm. um, and other things like you can't stop yourself from writing or remembering. So right, that makes sense. Yeah. I think with nonfiction, you should take a lot of notes. Because you can get a lot of smaller pieces out and uh, it doesn't need to be this deep. It doesn't have to be the essential core of your being, that kind of thing. But a novel, is it needs to sustain you through a number of years. If that thing is not very deep, it's not, if it's not very important to you, then and, uh, you probably cannot <laughs> get through to the finish line. You know, You might just start to change as you, as you write it and into something um, yeah, I guess you need to recognize the, the deep passion and, and or some just some ideas you can, I think you should, you, you still want to take notes if you are the person who does take notes and they, you can, they can help you with the smaller projects, but novel, yeah, you have to evaluate to see what's the best material for a novel. Yeah, I mean, I, I also take notes, just to be clear, for the for the letters. <laughs> no, but but I think sometimes, um, and I'll let Megan ask the next question <laughs> after this. Um, but um, I think sometimes, like, if I 
start to take notes. Maybe I take things seriously when I don't have that passion. And I think that's the difference is like, really, you should have the passion first. And then whatever you do with that, however you need to process that is a different thing. But just having an idea, like not holding on to every idea because you can't do every idea and knowing which ones are deeper. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. it's helpful anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I just love the way you put everything. Like it's so poetic and really clear and I could just take notes on copying down um, <laughs> everything that you're saying. Uh, <laughs> but I guess one of the things that just really struck me just now is that the idea that the what you work on has to sustain you and an image that keeps you going. And obviously like um, balancing a day job and a family and trying to find space for your writing, um, no matter how you protect it, as well as just, um, I don't know about you, but working from home when your kids are in school at home and you're, you know, everything this whole past year has been so upside down. Um, what, how do you keep that, how do you keep that focus on your writing in between your writing periods? In between the writing periods? Yeah, like how do you, how do you stay connected to your work when you can't work? You're writing. Um, yeah. You know, you write in the morning or you revise in the morning mm -hmm. and then you have more stuff in the afternoon. But like, how do you stay? Yeah. Linked to that. Or if you have a period of days or longer when you just aren't able to oh. um, sit down and write. Yeah. I write in bursts. I never write every day. I never could because I've always worked. Um, most of my life I worked full time. And after I became a mother, it's just impossible. Sometimes I don't write for, you know, weeks. I mostly write on nights and weekends. How do I stay connected? Um, that's a really good question. I guess I try to uh, create a mental space for the creative work. I try to make all, all the other tasks non-creative so that I can focus my emotion and energy on the most demanding creative work, which is writing fiction. When it comes to creative work, I cannot multitask or set a deadline at all. I have to relax, play, uh, get into some a sort of a trance and uh, let the story emerge from my subconscious. The creative impulse need to be coaxed, you know, um, yeah, you can't, you can't say I'm going to work, you know, how many hours I'm going to write. I couldn't, you know, how many pages. Uh, maybe you can, but the quality is, it would be hard to say, you know, it's a hit and miss. And I learned a simple but effective time management method called pickle jars theory. Have you heard of it? The pickle jars. <laughs> uh, you probably have seen oh. it, but just didn't know it's called like that. So premise is that time is limited, like pickle jar. I mean, mm -hmm. Imagine our life is a jar and what, what is in it is are the tasks that we can complete. So when you have a pickle jar, you fill it with rocks, pebble, and sand. The rocks are the big non-negotiable items, like your day job, or all things that have urgent deadlines or require big blocks of time, like your creative project, or something, someone else is counting on you. So those are your most important tasks. It's called rocks. 
The pebbles are the items that can be fit into a shorter time, like reply to emails or stuff that's not urgent, um, but be, can become rocks later if you procrastinate or they can just float to the top. They can fit into spaces of rocks and there is sand, tiny, easy tasks that can be done quickly, like social media, a quick phone calls, stuff like that. So when you start your day, you fill in the rocks first. You block the rock tasks that require big chunks of time. Next, you fit in tasks that take up short time, like reading or research. Then you fit in the pebbles, like, you know, like write emails. And finally, the sand. As I get older, I realize how little I can accomplish every day. You know, I can only do like one rock or like a little bit of sand and I'm, I'm tired. <laughs> That's it for me. <laughs> so, but as long as I stay on track, I keep working on it. I am making progress. If I fill my days with rocks, with a little bit of pebble or a tiny bit of sand, my days just seem productive and life is under control. Although I never have time to do everything I want. I just shouldn't compare myself to other people who have different priorities. You know, you just try to accomplish the big items <laughs> and uh, all the other things just have to wait and, or don't get done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Do you ever work on more than one writing piece at a time? Like a small, like an essay as well as your novels? I do. Yes. How do you do that? I always just to focus on one item, you know, even though, you know, you're working at the same time. Uh, when I work an essay, I put my novel aside. I'm not thinking about it at all. I need to throw my whole self, you know, your, your body and soul into the piece I'm working on. I, I'm pretty good at multitasking in my life, but I just don't multitask when it comes to writing on something, you know, for like, if I work on essay, I say for a week, I don't think about my novel at all. And then I come back to it. Yeah, I guess um, I have learned to live with my uh, limitations. <laughs> <laughs> Just try to do one thing well, you know, whatever you a creative task you focus on. That. Just do that. And don't think about the other creative project while you're working on the current task. Otherwise you will not be 100%, you know, in, in your in your story or in your essay that you need to give 100%. You need to um, go over the edge and you, you need to give 120%. You know? Yeah, 22 laps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, that's really great. Did you have any other questions, Olivia? Yeah, I actually, this is something that, um, yeah, because I live in London, there's a lot of people who are writing in not their native language or things like that. So I'm curious about if you had tips for people who are starting a writing journey and for whatever reason um, want to write in English. Um, obviously, their English is good, like they're living and working in, in a place. But like, do you have any tips for how you approach that? Because I mean, I'm I speak Russian, but I definitely am not writing novels in Russian. I think it's like a huge Yet. accomplishment <laughs> ever. <laughs> I think I can check the translation, but I think that's it. But but yeah, so I'm just curious um, 
you know, because that is, I'm like completely in awe of people who do it. Um, and also it can feel intimidating. So I've had some people give unhelpful grammar related comments when they prove somebody's short story, for example, that it's not mm-hmm. that helpful, I think, at the stage where you're sort of conceptually looking at someone's work and then giving these like really minor grammatical tweaks. And so sort of encouragement, tips, anything that you have for people who are who are doing that? Um, in order to write well, you have to read a lot. Um, I think reading is always top on the list, you know, to to be able to use the language well. Um, yeah, I actually like people correcting my grammar. So I don't have that. I just love language so much. I want to learn as much as I can. I don't take it personally, I guess. That's what I'm trying to say. Because my goal is to get the story out. If the correcting grammar will help it, will help me, I will take the help I can get. I guess um, think the story is something bigger than yourself. Something that, you know, it's a calling. And uh, you, you have to... You have to understand why you want to tell this story. I guess let the story take you, you know. Um, I never thought I would just be a writer. I thought I just want to tell my story. When I was growing up, I never thought of becoming a writer because I didn't know what it meant. Uh, it was not a viable option for people in China to, to live free as a writer. <laughs> There's a lot of censorship. So I don't have a conception of writer, but I do know I want to tell stories. I always try to tell stories. So if you let that impulse guide you, and you could possibly overlook uh, other smaller obstacles like grammar. And, you know, I was put down uh, numerous times by people in the workshop for my grammar. And uh, I could just look past it and just, you know, I have important work to do. I can't be bogged down, (laughs) but I will correct this, (laughs) but I will not feel bad about myself or stop writing. I still need to find a way to get the story out. There's no shortcut for anyone. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Focus on your story. You you will find a way. No, I love that. And obviously, like, we'll plug your essay, um, Why I Write in English. Again, it's a really good essay. I mean, not entirely about this topic, but I do think it's um, just really interesting also to be able to have that kind of freedom, like so many different linguistic abilities in order to be able to kind of choose and, and to notice how you communicate. I definitely communicate differently in Russian, for example, than I communicate in English. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and you sort of have a slightly different, I have a slightly different personality, um, and things like mm-hmm. that is quite interesting, but, but I do think, uh, it's really valuable, uh, to have, I also just really love like sometimes the language and the style of people who, um, mm-hmm. didn't, weren't raised speaking the same language or maybe had a different dominant language. Um, and I just love the way it's like very poetic also sometimes and it shows you something different about English which is not like the most poetic I think naturally <laughs> language in the world <laughs> um, yeah so I do I do love that but yeah your essay is excellent um is, is there anything that we didn't ask you that you want to talk about I can talk about what I'm obsessed lately <laughs> yes. yes oh yes that's a good one yes, that is our last question and we almost forgot yes. thank you for that yeah what are you what what, <laughs> um, what is yeah my boys <laughs> my elder son's going to college in the fall um he got accepted into two universities one is close by and other one in new york state i'm nervous about what he would choose this is a turning point in his life i'm excited for him 
and also feeling trepidation because anti-Asian violence is on the rise. I wish I could protect him from the harm and disappointment in the real world. In a sense, I begin to feel like the father in my good son. A parent's always a parent. <laughs> I, yeah, it made me think of your book, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Well, congratulations to him and to you for getting into three places and yeah. getting to make that big decision and start a new part of his life. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's a big uh, deal. It's a big deal for us too, and it's hard to let him go. <laughs> yeah, I can't yeah. imagine. Yeah, mine are much younger, so uh-huh. yeah. enjoy the time yet. you have with right. them. <laughs> it's true, <laughs> whatever it says. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, that's fun. It's fast. Yeah. Oh <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for coming on our show, and thanks for um, writing a really good book um, yeah. and letting us read it as well. <laughs> Um, and we will put we'll link to all of this stuff in our show notes and things like that thank you thank you for being so generous and kind oh thank you offering us good advice I love your show I'm a fan (laughs) oh thank (laughs) you we're big fans of your writing so thank you anytime And that's it for this week. You can find us online at marginallypodcast.com and on Instagram at marginallypodcast. Our email is podcast at marginallypodcast.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to our newsletter. The sign-up form is on our website. And if you enjoy the show, please consider rating it and leaving a review in your podcast app and or sharing an episode with a friend. This will help us to grow our community. Thanks for listening and happy writing. Marginally is produced by the two of us, Megan and Olivia, so excuse any amateur issues. We're working on it. Theme music is It's Time by Skarika Rikaska. Show notes for every episode are available at marginallypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. And I want to ask, um, oh yeah, um, I, sorry. <laughs>